Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hey, friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. This week, we are talking about one of the most important but often overlooked components of leadership. I'm talking about the power of generosity and by extension, the importance of investing in others. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, and I hope that you are, you'll recall that my guest Jody Glickman in episode 152 talks about this idea of the power of generosity, and she included a section on it in her terrific book entitled Great on the Job. If you missed the episode, be sure to check it out. I got incredible feedback on the conversation and on Jody's very actionable advice. Again, it's episode 152. Even the late Jack Welch, a legendary former CEO of GE, talked about generosity as the most important attribute of leadership. Being generous, of course, shows that you are a good team player. It makes people want to work with you. It creates goodwill, and the list goes on and on. And yet, We don't always focus on this particular attribute as we are developing leadership skills in ourselves and in others. Today's guest is the incredibly accomplished Dina Habib Powell McCormick. Dina has embodied this notion of generosity throughout her life and career, and it's been an important component of her leadership, her influence, and her power. Currently, Dina is the Global Head of Sustainability and Inclusive Growth at Goldman Sachs. Since joining the firm in 2007, she's led efforts to deploy more than $5 billion in loans and equity to develop and revitalize underserved communities. Two of Goldman's particularly well-known programs that Dina has spearheaded include 10,000 Women and 10,000 Small Businesses. She grew both of these programs from inception. But Dina's experience in leadership started well before she joined Goldman Sachs with senior jobs in government, including as the youngest ever head of presidential personnel for President George W. Bush. We talk about Dina's resume in this conversation. We talk about how the two of us met and became friends as young staffers on Capitol Hill many years ago, and how I've personally been the beneficiary of her generosity including when she played matchmaker to my now husband, Joel Kaplan and me some 17-ish years ago. Dina's story is remarkable, all the more so when you learn that she wasn't born into a family with political ties or fancy titles or lots of money. In fact, Dina's family immigrated to the US from Egypt when she was a young girl. Her parents' goal, to give Dina and her sisters a better life. 
Dina's incredible story is memorialized in President George W. Bush's book of immigrant portraits, which is entitled Out of Many One. The former president painted Dina and 42 other immigrants, including former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, all as examples of the American dream realized. You can read more of Dina's official bio in the show notes for this episode. But just a couple of quick notes before we get into our conversation. So much of Dina's career has been oriented toward giving back and investing in others to help them realize potential. That goes from not only her official work at Goldman, but as a mentor, a leader, and a friend. It all ties back to this notion of generosity. And now my conversation with my friend, Dina Habib Powell-McCormick. Dina, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. I'm so excited to be with you today. And I'm so proud of this podcast. It's must listen to. And in fact, I've started to send, really have started to send your links to my daughters. Oh, I love that. Interesting women you are interviewing. Thank you so much. Well, I am delighted to be here with you. You and I have known each other for many, many years, multiple decades at this point. We're, we're not that old, but we have known each other a long time. Yes, we met at five years old, you must know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant to say, yes. No, we were we were junior staffers on Capitol Hill almost three decades ago, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. And you have had this amazing career. But I want to start this conversation by talking about what you're doing now. Thank you so much. As I said, I'm so excited to be with you. And when you say that, I mean, I remember working um, on Capitol Hill nearly 30 years ago with you and friends like Kimberly Frombach White. And I always remember thinking, you know, I want to I want to be like her. I really do. And so to have eventually worked together in the White House and all that is just Pretty, pretty amazing stuff uh, as young women on Capitol Hill and young women in the White House together. Um, now you're finding me actually literally in the office of Goldman Sachs' headquarters at 200 West, uh, where I am the global head of sustainability and inclusive growth um, and have uh, for many years worked um, on a number of these issues that we focus on as a firm. I'm also dual-hatted. I run our sovereign business, so I both have an investment banking um uh, hat, and then this work around climate transition and inclusive growth. I mean, it's fair to say it's a very, very big job, and it's a long, long way away from where you first started and where you first launched. I want to, I want to pivot, and I want to talk about something that I know is very special to you, and that is your inclusion in President, former President George W. Bush's new book which is called Out of Many One. This is his book of portraits of 43 immigrants and their stories. You were one of the individuals that he profiled. Tell us this, uh, Tell us about how that came to be. And I, I want you to talk about um, how you grew up and how you came to the United States. Well, there are no words. And I told you this when you, um, you got the book before I did, by the way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I sent you a picture. I sent, I took a screenshot and I sent you a picture. And, um, you know, beyond humbling, there are no words um, to tell you what a deep honor it's been. Um, my parents have used their life savings to buy books. And when we were lucky enough to go to the um, 
kind of opening of the gallery where the president showed uh, the portraits that he had beautifully painted and, and many of the subjects were there, um, they couldn't stop crying. So it's been very humbling for our whole family. I remember when he asked me about it, um, I was kind of in shock. And I, I said, you know, Mr. President, there's so many famous immigrants you should paint. Um, and he said something very sweet. He said, well, you're the immigrant who worked for me. Um, like you, I had the, the huge honor of serving President Bush for nearly eight years um, in the White House. Um, and then at the State Department as Assistant Secretary when um, Secretary Rice became Secretary of State. So to go from that, I mean, the best story, I guess, that he talks about in the book is the fact that um, my parents immigrated when I was a five-year-old from Cairo, Egypt. I didn't speak English. Um, you know, obviously I was young enough that learning English uh, was uh, was uh, challenging, but, you know, obviously learned in school fairly quickly. It was learning Texan, Laura, that was a whole <laughs> lot harder. That I can appreciate that. <laughs> as you can appreciate very much. Um, and so, you know, here we were, this immigrant family, um, you know, a small Christian community, uh, Coptic Christian community in Dallas, Texas. And I'll never forget, my parents used to always say to me and to my sisters, you know, we left our homeland, we left our church, we left everything behind so you girls can reach your dreams as long as you're a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. <laughs> um, I think they felt those were safe, stable, safe and stable jobs. I would definitely have an income, you know, if I did that. And so politics was never really the path. I could have never dreamed that I would have worked for a president. Um, and I went to the University of Texas and you know, really, it was more to pay for college. Um, I didn't love my waitressing job. So I started working in the Texas State Senate and thought that was just a you know job until I went to law school. Um, and I had been accepted to law school and was heading there. And just at the last minute, had a chance to go to Washington and work first for Kay Bailey Hutchison. You remember her, of course. Right. And I, def I actually sent the letter of deferral um, to my parents because I knew they would freak out. And um, they they said, why did we even move from Egypt? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, why are you going? They just didn't even understand what I was doing um, until one day, many, many, many years later, they kept saying, aren't you coming back to law school? We went, they came, I bet you were there, to the White House for an event. And the president saw uh, my dad um, in a rope line and he walked over to him and he said, um, you must be Mr. Habib. And my father couldn't speak. And he said, um, you've raised an, a great girl. and She's an important advisor to me. And as he walked away, my father got very emotional, not mm -hmm. something that I was ever used to seeing. And um, he said, you know, Dina, as proud as I am of you, I'm just so proud to be an American because there's no other country in the world where a man can bring a little girl who doesn't speak a word of the language and then one day watch her serve the president of his adopted country. It's amazing. And it's really so, amazing. Tell us, if you would, Dina, the story that's captured in the book um, is also a very poignant story that I, when I read it, it, I literally started crying. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Tell that story for our listeners as well. I, I think you must be referring to the, um, the Harlan Crow story. Right? I am. Yes. yes. So, um, all those years I, I worked with you. And I mean, when do we get to interject that I kind of had the privilege of playing a little role in your life? <laughs> you did indeed. Dina is a master, master matchmaker. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll come back to that. But um, 
I ended up working uh, almost the full administration and coming to Goldman Sachs. And um, when I we had a board meeting in Dallas, our, my hometown, and um, our friend John Rogers said, why don't you bring your dad as your date? Uh, so I thought he'd get a kick out of it. And sure enough, he picked me up in his nice car and we drove to Highland Park and to Harlan uh, and, and Kathy Crow's beautiful house in Highland Park. And it's one of those long driveways and get to the valet. And he gets out and he says, um, Dina, I've been here before. And I, you know, <laughs> dad, no, you haven't. I love you, but I don't think you've been to the Crow's house. And he said, um, oh, I, yes, I have. He said, I mowed this lawn um, the first two years we moved from Egypt. And now I'm walking in um, as the date of a partner of Goldman Sachs, uh, who happens to be my daughter. So, and, and honestly, that is so personally touching for me and our family, but so many millions of immigrants across our country um, do so much so that their children, the next generation, can have opportunities that they never, you know, could have had. And, and I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story that President Bush tells of every immigrant he painted. It's just, it's an amazing, amazing story. I just love the story. Okay, I want to dig into um, the different, really, milestones in your career, if you will. So you deferred law school, sort of started this career in politics, worked on Capitol Hill, but ultimately got hooked up with the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Talk about those those first couple of jobs. You You were, I know this wasn't your first job, but I think your second job, you were the youngest ever head of presidential personnel. Maybe talk a little bit about that particular job, because I think it's such an interesting one. A lot of people think about a role in HR as being a place that can be difficult to get out of, especially if you're a woman. So I'd love for you to speak to why that wasn't the case for you and sort of advice that you have for others as it relates to that. Sure. Sure. Well, you're right. Many people don't realize that, um, you know, every president uh, on January 21st uh, basically has to start to appoint more than 5,000 political appointees. Um, and they've grown over time since you and I were there, but hundreds and hundreds that require Senate confirmation. And these make up the you know principal leaders in our government, the cabinet, the sub-cabinet, ambassadors, important boards and commissions. And it's a daunting task. I mean, imagine if a company just, you know, 5,000 people walked out the door. <laughs> And so it was a lot of work. And President Bush took it very, very seriously. Um, you know, he really understood that people are policy. And so, you know, even when you talk about HR, I mean, ultimately, if you don't have the right people in the roles, um, you don't advance, in this case, a policy agenda um, or, you know, or anything that you're trying to achieve. And so we were, you know, working around the clock. Um, we met with him very regularly. Um, your husband was often a vetter of my candidates. He'd call me up and say, I don't know about this one, Dina. Are you sure this is the best person you could get? Um, and uh, we had a long process, very orderly, and he would literally sign off, the president would, on every single Senate-confirmed position. He would read about them. He would say, you know, get me three more candidates or, you know, I really want to focus on more diversity or whatever, you know, it might be. But it was a particularly um, sensitive period uh, because, of course, it was 9-11. Um, you right. know, another thing I think we we forget is that 9-11 happened only seven months into the Bush administration. And I remember having literally not left my office because, you know, uh, this this role took a lot of time. Um, and I was there uh, at the White House on 9-11. 
And I remember the Secret Service, who, as you know, are usually so polite. And they threw open the door of my office and screamed, take your shoes off and get out of here now. Start running. I had to go get the interns. Um, and in their earpiece, you know, was Flight 93 that was either mm-hmm. going towards the Capitol um, or the White House. The Pentagon had already been hit. Um, and I, I remember wobbling out because I was eight months pregnant with <laughs> my first daughter. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, they're just in that moment, they're never going to let us back in. You know, it just was, it was so scary what would have happened, this horrific, tragic loss of life for our nation and the brutality of it. And the next day, President Bush had everybody meet at 830 in the White House. And part of that was as much a sign that you will not defeat us. You will not defeat America or our spirit. We are hurt and wounded, but you will never defeat um, who we are. And we got right back to work and started Mm -hmm. filling positions. I will tell you, it became easier to recruit people because everyone wanted to serve. Everyone was raising their hand and saying, what can I do to help my country? And that was a really inspirational, you know, part of the, the job. Um, yeah, you were, you were, um, I was one of those people who raised my hand and I am very grateful to you on a number of different fronts. Not only did you help put me in the two positions that I held in the Bush administration, but even more importantly, you also facilitated a bit of an introduction to my husband. <laughs> yes, that is my greatest achievement. I'm very, very proud of that. Um, you know, it's so funny. That's another thing friends do for each other. You had always been such a such a sweet friend to me and a role model. Um, and I remember when I told Phil, I said, if you're lucky enough for her to say yes, <laughs> you better ask her out right away because <laughs> she's a pretty special uh, woman who a lot of people are interested in. And he 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 got it right away. That's the good news. And thank I goodness. Fun <laughs> at your wedding. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my goodness, we go back a long, long way. <laughs> So you, after your uh, your role in presidential personnel, you held a number of different roles as well. You moved up to Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs, Deputy Undersecretary for Public Policy and Public Diplomacy. Talk a little bit about those particular roles. And, and specifically, I want to transition and talk about a program that you started at Goldman, which I think was in some respects, kind of a continuation of the work that you had done in government. And that is with the 10,000 Women Program and the 10,000 Small Business Program. Maybe talk a little bit about how those pieces all fit together, how you think about them. Sure. Um, You know, after um, 9-11, I was so grateful that I was able to be in government like you because you felt this enormous sense of responsibility. And obviously the fact that, you know, I spoke Arabic and and was able to then work with Secretary Rice on, you know, these, you know, horribly challenging issues. And we recognized right away that the greatest investment for peace that you could make around the world was empowering, protecting and investing in women and girls. And so she made that an enormous priority. She, President Bush and Mrs. Bush made that a national security priority because they all believed that you know, if you uh, want to predict if a country will be a good ally of the United States, just look at how it treats its women. And so, as you know, that was a big part of what Mrs. Bush focused on um, after 9-11. It's a big part of PEPFAR, if you think about it, which I think is one of the greatest legacies for President Mrs. Bush, the millions and millions of lives saved 
on the African continent that, you know, disproportionately impacted women and girls. And so uh, we worked on all those issues and I was so proud of it. And when I was when I was recruited to Goldman Sachs, um, they had just released a very interesting piece of research called Womenomics a few just a couple of years before written by a good friend of mine our chief economist in Asia Kathy Matsui and Kathy found that you know it seems so obvious now but back then it was sort of breaking research that right. greater labor force participation by women just in Japan uh, would have a huge impact on global GDP growth given the size of the Japanese economy right. you know it was a simple obvious but it kind of took off and people started to recognize that empowering women economically was not just the right thing to do or a just thing to do. It was smart economics. And so the firm knew they wanted to build a program. Uh, and, and we, the, the one thing we are, I hope, fairly good at is allocating capital. And so we launched an initiative to provide capital, education, and mentoring to literally 10,000 female entrepreneurs around the world in countries as diverse as Rwanda, Afghanistan, Egypt, China, Brazil, Um, And I'm very proud to say that program goes on. It's reached 70,000 female entrepreneurs uh, with the World Bank. Uh, We've raised $1.7 billion of capital for female entrepreneurs. And, you know, obviously we're a a numbers organization, Goldman Sachs, um, but the the stories um, are, are, are the, you know, the illustrations of why this makes a difference. I'll I'll share one story. I mean, I can tell thousands of stories of these extraordinary women. But I remember when we wanted to invest um, in a program in Afghanistan, people were very concerned, security issues. And, you know, there was such hopelessness at the time in Afghanistan. But we our board and our leadership agreed. And we started working with um, female entrepreneurs in uh, Kabul. And this one woman who I'll never forget, Rangina Hamidi, owned a little company called Kandahar Treasures. (laughs) She would go to the most conservative provinces in Afghanistan, mainly Taliban controlled still. And she would find women who had never left their homes, take some handicrafts they made, rugs, scarves, jewelry, sell those and bring them back some proceeds. She told me a story of a woman she met in Bamiyan, which is probably the most conservative um, province at the time. This woman grabbed her hand one day when Rangina came to give her her proceeds. She said, Rangina, my husband has never listened to me. He's certainly never asked my advice or opinion on any matter. But ever since I've been making a tiny bit of income, suddenly he's asking me questions. Like last week when he said, I don't believe in these girls' schools that are going up, but I suppose I should ask you if our, if our five daughters should go to school. Wow. She was so smart. She said to him, you know, I have failed you by not bearing a son for you. And now you'll have to work your whole life to provide dowries for these girls when they're 13 years old. But if you force them to go to school, they will learn a trade and make money like me and take care of you in your old age. And her husband kind of looked over at her with a curious pause and said, you are right. We will force them to go to school. What a great story. And sure enough, those five girls, we followed it, completed primary school secondary school, which is nearly non-existent uh, for girls in Afghanistan. And that woman who is illiterate, never left her home, changed the course of a generation of her family by being economically independent. 
And to me, that story says there is no place in the world that if you just economically empower a woman a little bit, that you give her voice in every sphere of her life and society. And we know that women reinvest everything they make into community as well. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing story. Dina, one of your big successes at Goldman has been with the 10,000 Small Businesses Program. I'd love it if you would share with us maybe one story that helps illustrate the impact of that program. I think you know the story about Roy Castro, the small business owner. Unfortunately, when I met him, he'd been in prison for 10 years and uh, had um, had such a tough life and no no parents, kind of grew up on the streets and long story short, um, was given a chance by this extraordinary organization, Strive, where I met him and he actually got into 10,000 small businesses um, and he's now one of the largest ice distributors in the Bronx. And the crazy part of the story is I met him and I went up to him after hearing him speak at one of these events about how he just kept faith and promised when he got out that he would try to have a second chance in life. And um, I gave him my business card, actually, and never heard from him. Um, And four years later, I was sitting at my desk the day before Thanksgiving, and I get this email, Dear Mrs. Powell, um, I don't even know if you work at Goldman Sachs anymore, but my wife told me to use it or lose it. I've been carrying your business card around in my wallet for four years, and I would love the chance to see if you can help me grow my business. And wow. He became one of the best graduates of 10,000 small businesses and is an extraordinary man. That's amazing. I mean, what an incredible story of impact and just investing in a single person, the impact that that can have. Incredible. Well, he's had more of an impact on me, I have to tell you. He's been a wonderful friend to our whole family and He's amazing. That's wonderful. You spent um, several years starting the 10,000 Women program and also the 10,000 Small Business program, but ultimately decided to take a role in the previous administration focused on national security. Talk about that trajectory and why investing time and energy in national security in particular was important to you. Well, I think it, you know, Having, of course, worked um, on those issues um, you know, under President Bush and Secretary Rice, you just really realize um, how important America's voice in the world is and, um, you know, literally, you know, how critical these national security positions are. And you, you want to have um, very strong people, you know, in them. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I think today we're in a, in a situation where um, we're just we're watching what's happening in the Middle East and you know, you just, there's never really any pause in, in these issues for a, a, U, a U.S. president. And the whole world looks to America. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a story that, um, you know, was one of the things I thought about when I, um, you know, or even when I share with people now, should you work in government? I remember traveling in the Middle East many times with Condi Rice. And it was a tough, tense period, as you might imagine. And um we would go and meet with kings and crown princes. And one time we were in a very important meeting and the leader started off by saying, um, you know, Madam Secretary, I hope you haven't come here to preach to me about democracy uh, and human rights. And um, it was amazing what she did, Laura. She looked over at him and she said, your highness, how could I possibly come and preach to you when it wasn't all that long ago that my own country counted me as three fifths of a man? We are on a journey. 
We are an imperfect country, but we are striving to be a more perfect union. And so what I'm sharing with you is our own experience in the hopes that you'll recognize giving rights to your people will only make you a stronger country. And I was so struck by that. And I share that with you today um, because I learned a lot. You know, I learned that you can be strong and humble at the same time. And we both know how strong she is. So right, right. No one doubted her strength. But I just always thought, you know, that's one of the best ways to diplomatically represent the United States. Um, yeah. and here we are, a country that's only, you know, what, 244, 45 years old. You know, countries like Egypt are three and 4,000 years old. And right. so we're a pretty strong country based on those important principles. But how we communicate them around the world is, is pretty important. Dina, when you think about really that first big role in the White House focused on people, talk about lessons that you learned in that role that you have continued to apply in all of your roles going forward. Well, as you know, because we were both young at the time, um, big jobs, young, uh, very nervous and high stakes. Uh, So um, learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes. You know, lesson one for me um, that I always share is as painful as it is, you only grow through big mistakes uh, mm-hmm. or, or failure because you really learn so much and you can either ob- obsess about the mistake or you can take the lessons learned and grow. Um, now, I'll admit, I still am an obsessor. <laughs> Sometimes I think, <laughs> why did I say that in that meeting? Even if, you know, 90% was good, I think about it, I replay it in my mind. You know, men, on the other hand, uh, Laura, go in and say, I crushed that meeting. <laughs> and they don't think about <laughs> much after. But that's probably lesson number two is sort of um, we hold ourselves back um, right. by obsessing about what could have been, how I should have done it better. Um, you know, every day we try to do the best that we can and, and not obsessing is, is pretty important. Do you have a do you have a, a, a toolkit or a strategy to stop yourself when you find yourself engaging in that kind of activity that's counterproductive? You know, um, it's interesting. I have learned that I give myself a certain amount of time to obsess. And also my husband says, <laughs> OK, you, that's it. Ten minutes. I can't do anymore. Like you can't record this morning. You have to call somebody else. So I, I find one friend. I, I ask a friend to be honest. Um, that's the that's the other thing um, that, you know, I've learned, too, is mentors come in many different forms. The couple that have helped me the most were the ones that were honest with me and gave mm. me the right constructive criticism I needed to hear. Yeah. And so um, when you, if you, you, you know, that's what I do. I go to the person and I say, how bad of a mistake is it? And they'll say, yeah, it wasn't your best moment, but you got to move on now. And so I've really, I've really learned um, very hard to do that. Um, the other big lesson I've learned, and I learned this just, you know, over many years of seeing it so clearly, you really are as strong as your team is. And investing in your team, um, being a woman who people, you know, want to work with because uh, they know they'll get promoted. I mean, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is really um, in government, but especially in uh, in uh, at Goldman Sachs. I've had so many women work for me and go on to get promoted and do amazing things. And I have a little saying that I share with my girlfriends, which is, you know, we should always ask ourselves um, as a legacy question, where are all the women that worked for you? Oh, and yeah. if you can kind of look back and say they're 
they've exceeded anything I ever did even, right? Um, you'll, you'd feel so proud. And I, I think you're never too young or early in your career to do that. That's the other thing. Sometimes yeah. we say, I've got to, you know, get there and then I'll help and I'll bring the ne next uh, generation. But thinking about that early and the impact that you can have as a mentor um, on someone's life can be very transformational. Yeah. You are well known for many things. You're incredibly bright. You have had this amazing career. You have also been and continue to be incredibly generous with the people around you. You invest in relationships in a way that I think a lot of people really don't. And I, I'd love for you to talk a bit about why that's so important. Like we can, we can call it networking, but it's really, as I look at your career and having known you for all these years, you invest in people. Talk about why you do that and why it matters. I've been so blessed to be the beneficiary of it, you know, is, 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 the, is what I'll say. You know, I had um, friends, um, bosses just invest in me, and uh, it was so meaningful to me. It, it's a huge part of why, you know, I think I am where I am professionally, but also personally. And so it's re it has to be real, first of all. Um, and I, and I, people were such good friends to me in tough times, whether tough jobs bad moments, um, divorce, you know, whatever life brings you, right? Those hard moments to have had people that really deeply cared about me for no other reason than they were my friend and loved me um, was everything. And so mm -hmm. I've really tried to do that, in a, not in a corny way, but to, to pay it forward. And people remember it, you know, um, they, it really means a lot. A friend of mine um, just had a, a tough incident. She left a job kind of uh, through no fault of her own, but it was reported a little bit negatively. And um, I took her out to dinner a, a couple of days ago. And she said, thanks for being there for me, you know, when I'm down. And it just reminded me, that's when you want to be there for somebody. When you think it's it's the toughest moment for them, but they mm -hmm. always remember that. And so I think when your relationships are real, the networking is real. And any you know, help along the way many years later that may come is because they were true friendships and true relationships. And you were there for people when you didn't think they'd ever help you. I mean, Joel and I used to joke when we worked together in the White House, boy, we sure are popular right now. <laughs> um, boy, our phone calls and we get invited to things. Remember, Laura, you and I and Joel, and we would all sure. be invited to all these parties and well, the phone stopped ringing when you leave the White House. And uh, that can be a little bit of a sad thing, right? In uh, yeah. in Washington, sometimes you're, you're, you know, called more because of your position than your who you are. And so I always remembered that too, that, you know, people really, you're either a real friend or not, and it matters for the long run. Yeah. Maybe play that forward a little bit as it relates to, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, I get this question a lot, about picking mentors, Talk about the importance of that relationship piece and that authenticity as you are finding people who can help you in guiding your career. I, I'm just such a huge believer in it. And I believe more in a mentoring that is really uniquely valuable for you. So I think there's two different things. There's networking, right? And meeting people and having someone help you get a job interview. And then there's really meaningful mentorship where someone cares about you and invests in you 
And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, I really think everybody should have a, a, a personal board of advisors mm. and, you know, three or four people that you really trust, but that also you can take the feedback, you know, like you can't get upset when they tell you that maybe you made a mistake. I've had that from women, uh, female mentors and male mentors. Um, in some ways, some of the male mentors were, um, you know, so significant to me, you know, when, um, you know, working for a couple of CEOs at Goldman Sachs who would tell me, you know, when I would make a mistake in a meeting to really try to help me. Clay Johnson in the White House was a huge mentor to me and he gave it to me straight a few times and I couldn't believe the directness, but I appreciated it. I worry a little today that people are scared to be direct um, and and we're going to lose some of that, you know? I think if you create a safe place, have this board of advisors, um, ask for their opinion, and really take it well um, when they're guiding you, um, it's invaluable. And, and, and it certainly helped me a great deal. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great, great point. I think this notion of feedback is oftentimes really difficult for a lot of people. And while my audience for this podcast, as you know, is primarily women, I do think sometimes, especially as we're launching our careers, that learning to hear feedback, especially when it's difficult and not take it too personally, is a real skill, frankly. What advice do you have for helping someone, teaching someone how to get that constructive or negative feedback and not let it crush them? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to kid you. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> so at Goldman Sachs, we have a review system. Um, and I'm sure you had one for many years too, but at the end of the year you get reviewed. And my first year at Goldman, you know, I, I was, uh, I joined as a lateral hire as a managing director. So I hadn't grown up at Goldman in the way that analysts do and they join and they're here for 30 years and they kind of grow up at Goldman. And, um, you know, I, I thought we had done a good job. We'd launched 10,000 women that year. And anyway, I got some really rough feedback at, at the end of the year. Um, just things that I didn't know because I had never worked in the private sector, to be honest. Um, right. good, good learnings that I needed to understand. And um, it was crushing. <laughs> I was really upset. Um, it was John Rogers, you know, had to uh-huh. tell me nicely because it's a peer, you know, you get anonymous sort of feedback in these reviews. And I was, he said, you know what? It happened to me too. I came from government. I worked for Secretary Baker. I came to Goldman. I was, it was like a kick in the gut. You got to get yourself up and try again next year. You know, do the best that you can. And by the way, there's just a few things that people have said you should work on. So I did for like two days, kind of like, oh, but I was so proud the next year when I got my review um, because one of the comments was takes feedback really well and has clearly wow. worked on the issues that you know, were presented to her. Uh I don't know why that was such a like source of pride for me. Like, okay, I got the feedback. It really sucked, but I really tried hard to understand what I wasn't seeing clearly and how to work on it. And, and part of that was, you know, being, you know, uh, connecting to a few people at Goldman who helped me and being more communicative about things and sharing what, you know, insecurities I had anyway. And so one thing is that if that feedback really helps you improve, and you actually see that path, it, it's so important. And so that's why when I'm sharing feedback, I, I, I tell that story. If you that. don't see what you don't, you know, in yourself, it's hard to see those things. Um, and so what a gift it is when someone says, here's just a couple of things to work on. You're doing great. Here's a couple of things you should, you should work on. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. That's such great advice. I want to talk a little bit about this notion of confidence because it comes up on this podcast a lot. Um, I think as women, it can be hard to keep our confidence strong and solid. And for you and I and a lot of our listeners, we're raising girls. Um, you're, you're launching a few at this point. You've got some in college. But maybe talk a little bit about your view of confidence and where your own confidence comes from and then how you've helped your girls to develop that confidence. Well, it's a lot of girls, as you know, Dana. <laughs> have six daughters between us. And, um, you know, it's it's been, of course, an incredible joy. Um, but also, you know, raising daughters in these times, it's, it's difficult. You know, we want to believe that our girls are going to grow up in a, in a more fair world um, where they'll be seen for all their strengths. Um, and I think that's starting, of, co- of course, that's happening, but it's often confidence that gets in the way. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to try out for that because I'm not as good or, you know, I'll never get that mom. I don't, you know, and, and we hear that. And so, you know, I, I really try hard and so does Dave to, to actually to talk about things we didn't get, you know, dream jobs we applied for that we didn't get. But guess what happened? I never went to law school, but guess what? I got to work for a president or, you know, I took a big jump and went to Goldman Sachs. I never would have planned that either. So we talked to them about sometimes in life, taking risks is a very good thing, uh, may or may not work out. And so also letting them know that's okay, Um, because I think confidence does come from putting yourself in many different situations. And uh, just you were an incredibly successful businesswoman after your years of government, but it's hard to shift gears. Um, it's hard as, as we, you know, get older. And so I would say encouraging risk and knowing that um, that builds confidence, especially I think for young women uh, to do a variety of things. And the other thing, I mean, honestly, Laura is is service. Um, you know, we ins- really try to instill in all six girls the sense that the greatest privilege that Dave and I have both had is a chance to serve. You know, he's obviously West Point and served as a combat vet in the first Gulf War, and also served President Bush. And the fact that I had the privilege of serving as an immigrant um, uh, in our government, and then the work that I you know, have the um, opportunity to do with 10,000 women or 1 million Black women, you know, that there's, there's nothing that gives you confidence than feeling like whatever tiny little role I may have played in helping someone's life made a difference. Um, that, that is a, a huge source of, I think, confidence building because you see firsthand an impact that you can have on someone's life. Right. Absolutely. Okay. We didn't talk about 1 million Black women, which is the new initiative that you've just rolled out. Well, we're, we're very, very proud of it. We've launched it with an incredible group of advisory council members, Roz Brewer, the CEO of Walgreens, Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, Secretary Rice, uh, Valerie Jarrett. We have an incredible group of advisors who are helping us build on our 15 years of work. And in this case of uh, investing quite a significant amount of capital, $10 billion dollars, uh, to close opportunity gaps that Black women face in the country. And they are the pillars of Black communities across uh, the country. And uh, when our CEO said, let's find a, a real way to invest and make a difference on um, an economy that's working for all, but also racial equity. And so we we're very, very proud of it. We um, are launching our first series of investments this week um, and also some new 
advisory council members, I definitely um, got the, wow, you might be kind of cool mom when I told the girls that Steph and Aisha Curry have joined our council Amazing. and are, are very active. She's an extraordinary woman, um, restaurateur, and we're working with her to uh, provide capital for uh, Black female-owned uh, restaurants across uh, first in Oakland and then and then scaling it. So we're very proud of the program. And we've had listening sessions um, all uh, virtually, of course, but more than 12,000 people have participated, giving us great ideas for nonprofits to support and investments to invest in. So if your um, listeners have any ideas, I hope they'll reach out to me. It's awesome. Okay, Dina, one final question before I let you go. If you could leave our audience with maybe a single piece of advice, a life hack or mantra, maybe something that you wish you had known at 22, or maybe something that you share regularly with your girls, what would that be? You know, I I think it would be back to that, what was your legacy? What, What did you leave behind? Question. We as women don't realize all the people that count on us, that we nurture, that we help. And I think that, you know, when it's all said and done and you're at the end, you want to look back and believe that it was really the people that you invested in and that cared about you that is your greatest legacy. And um, I, I think that, you know, that's what I, I tell my girls. You know, it's it's not going to be the career wins that you remember or the, um, you know, whatever success you might have. Um, at the end, I think it's going to be the people that you loved and who loved you back in your life and the impact that you tried to make. Yeah, very well said. Dina, my dear friend, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. I loved being with you. Say hi to Joel, but also your sweet parents who I love. <laughs> I will. You too. Hey, friend, thanks so much for joining us this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. To learn a bit more about Dina, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 158. I'd love to know what resonated with you and how you think about generosity as a component of your own leadership journey. What incredible examples of generosity have you experienced from bosses, peers, and mentors? I'd love to hear. We may all define success a little bit differently. It's a very personal thing. But when it comes to leadership, those skills and those lessons matter no matter which path we choose or how we think about success. Friend, if you are new to She Said, She Said podcast, I am delighted that you've joined us today and I hope you'll stick with us. Please be sure to subscribe or to follow the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also check out my Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan, where I share regular updates on a lot of the content that we talk about on this podcast. Now, while I know that your time is precious and I work very hard to add value to your day, if you get a minute, I would be so grateful for your feedback on this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. And I would love to have a nice review from you. A few words about what resonates with you and why you're listening. Providing a review and giving me feedback is a huge help, especially as we're thinking about content and as we're continuing to fine tune and hopefully get better with each and every episode. But also, it helps others who are looking for content like this to find it. I am so grateful, as always, to have you here. 
And I hope that you found this little investment of your time well worth it. I'll see you again next week. Take care.